Hello, everyone. This is Swix back again with another emergency pod. The last time we did this was in March when OpenAI released ChatGPT plugins, and the new functions API today is effectively the ChatGPT plugins API now available to all developers, and with a whole bunch of other news: seventy-five percent price drops on embeddings, four times the context length, and a lot more other updates. So, what we do in these situations, when there's breaking news and it's very developer focused, is we convene all the friends of the pod with Simon Wilson, Riley Goodside, with people from Microsoft Research, Hugging Face. And Pinecone, and more that I don't even know where they work at. I think some of them used to also contribute to Langchain. But anyway, we just had all our developer friends. We had fourteen、uh, hundred people tune in yesterday、uh, just to talk about what they think and what they want to build with the new Functions API. We aim for Latent Space. We're very much targeting for Latent Space to be the first place that people hear about developer-relevant news and to go deep on technical details,、uh, to think about what they can build with them, and to hear rumors and news about anything and, and everything that they can build with. So enjoy. Unfortunately, Alessio was on vacation, so he couldn't help co-host. But fortunately, friend of the pod, Alex. Joined in, and that's going to be the first voice that you hear. Alex has been doing a fantastic job running Twitter Spaces every Thursday. If you want to talk about just general AI stuff, and as well as just follow him for his recaps of really great news. So, without any further ado, here is our discussion on OpenAI's Functions API and the rest of the June updates. For those of you who worked with OpenAI 3.5 and 4, etc., feel free to raise your hand and come up, ask questions as we explore this together. And I'll just say thanks to a few folks who joined me on stage, Nistan and John. And we we've been doing some of these updates every Thursday, but this one is an emergency session, so we'll see. Maybe Thursday we'll cover some more. So OpenAI today released an update, the June update, with a bunch of stuff. And we'll start with the with the simple ones, but we're here to discuss kind of the, the developer things. We'll start with the pricing updates. So seventy five percent reduction in embedding. Price. This follows a ninety percent reduction of embedding costs back in, I want to say November, December. Anybody remember that? Maybe Roy in the audience. Roy, feel free to come up as well. And we've seen kind of this reduction in cost on a on a trajectory to basically, you know, being able to embed, to embed the whole internet. There's actually I want to find this. There's actually a tweet by Boris from OpenAI. That talks about approximately it's going to cost you fifty million dollars to embed the whole internet, like all of the text on the internet, pretty much. And Logan followed up today and said, you know, after the updates of the pricing today, it's around twelve point five million versus fifty million before. Just to give like a huge scope of numbers in terms of like how how fast this this type of tech advances. And we have Zenova in the audience. Zenova.、Um, Feel free when you finish eating. But basically, there's now a debate whether or not embedding on client side is worth, given that it's like so, so, so free or almost like very, very cheap to embed stuff. Obviously, it's an API, and there's、uh, concerns about using private data. But embedding 75% cheaper. Imagine that you run embeddings on production. And John, let me know if you do. Nistan, today, if you switch to this API, you basically just received a 75% like price cut. For for the use of a bunch of, of a bunch of stuff, and by the Riley from Dexa here, once he joins, they also they do a bunch of embeddings for pretty much every podcast out there. So, you know, just in one day, you you can receive like a significant significant decrease in costs. 
So embedding price goes down significantly. Very exciting. In addition to this, another price cut is the 25% for GPT 3.5. Yeah, I just want to say, so we use, we use a lot of embeddings. So we're really happy to see that. But the thing I'm most excited about pricing-wise today is the new 16K GPT 3.5 model. Because I, I believe it's about 150% the price of GPT 3.5 Turbo previous API pricing. Or what it, what it is now, rather. And this is really significant for us because GPT 3.5 has never had that many tokens that you can max out in your context window. For So when we build our input prompts for our co-pilots, it's usually using most of the 4K window just for the input. And so this is a massive, massive increase for us in terms of the economics of getting a big output compared to like GPT 432K or GPT 48K, right? It's yep. a really, really big bonus for us. And it's barely more expensive than 3.5 regular. So I think that's going to be really massive. Super excited to see what people build with the 3.5 16K model. Because yeah, honestly, so, so. like we think GPT-4 is just quite expensive at this point. Like We don't use it very much in production. Which we we talked last week in our spaces. The roadmap for OpenAI, Sam, Sam often talk about this publicly, is to decrease the price and also increase the speed. But yeah, let me welcome a few more folks here. Welcome, Sean, who prompted this emergency <laughs> emergency spaces. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm moderately excited about it. You know, I think you and I had this chat where we were trying to scope out what the impact is. And I, I think this is an incremental update. So good news on, on many, many fronts. They're, sh they're shipping with a really good pace, but not a game changer in my mind. Just incremental updates. <laughs> So we'll definitely get into the functions thing because I want to take a big bite to understand like what this means. But I think we covered pretty much all the other updates by now, right? So we have a decrease, significant decrease in embedding costs. We have a significant decrease in GPT 3.5, uh, just inference cost, And we have a 4x larger context window for GPT 3.5, right? Like it used to be 4,000 tokens, now 16. Yeah, and keep, keep in um, mind that people also have access to 32K GPT 4. For, for four, but not for 3.5, yes. not, not for Correct. the fast one. Yeah. So, yeah. so so something to call out for those people who are kind of new to long content. Um, there's a, it's a little bit uncertain how well the context holds throughout that whole that new 16,000 token window that you're now being given. There's some evidence to state that it doesn't actually pay enough attention to that. So a very simple way to do this is to ask it to add two numbers that would be, let's say, 100 million digits long, right? So you add two numbers. If you do that in a calculator, it would do it fine in GPT-3 or 4. Even with however many context windows it would take to, to embed that, it would probably not do well because it only has so many attention heads to add numbers with. So it's just kind of an open question. We're not being told any details about you know, any architectural changes, but mm -hmm. can you just scale up GPT-3 to 16,000 context and have that context work the same exact same way as 4,000 token context. It's actually unclear. So I just, I just pointed out. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And we, we've seen this, or at least I've seen this with, with Claude when they released the 100K token. And I actually had like significant, like probably attention decrease, Sean, if you yeah. use your language, but significant like performance decrease in the 100K token for the exact same kind of type of data. Yeah. So. The, the, we'll see, like they just released it today. John will use this in production and tell us. But I think, and here's Sean, that, that's what we discussed in DMs. So this is the reason for the space is that the functions release 
is the most exciting to me and i think it's a, it's a big change so <laughs> so let's talk about this for our audience we, we have some folks in the audience and riley if you'd like i want to, to 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 get you also to come up and speak totally uh, riley, riley said. all of yeah. us all of us have tried at some point in our life to, to, to get gpt to give us back a format of some sort we've talked about yaml being maybe less tokens count overall over json and we all we all tried this and i think we've all been begging open AI to kind of give us this tool and what i see today is that they they went step forward so instead of just giving us hey we will do whatever what was that microsoft thingy that the forces prompted to json guidance um, I forgot. yeah guidance so instead of just giving you like a guidance thing they are actually kind of thinking step ahead as, as far as i saw and saying hey why don't you provide us with the whole specification of the functions that you will use the output to uh-huh. And not only that, give us the functions themselves. We will decide based on the user prompt which functions to use, which significantly reminds me of the plugin infrastructure. So, Sean, I would love to hear from you about the function choosing and the and the schema. I think you actually did a really good recap of it. The only thing I would add is that in the API, there's essentially a new role. Um, so historically in ChatGPT, there have been three roles. There's the system prompt, the, assist, the, the assistant, and the user. And now we have a fourth row for the function and uh, an extra field in the API for the function response or the, the list of functions that are capable or available to it. So this is effectively the ChatGPT plugins API being released to us. So previously it was only available if you paid the 20 bucks to get ChatGPT Plus, but now you actually can turn off ChatGPT Plus because you can just access the, these plugins via, via the API. And as far as I can tell, Bing with Bing Chat is actually better than ChatGPT with web browsing. So like, there's there's basically no reason why you should pay twenty bucks anymore. <laughs> the the reason I guess I, I'm a little bit less excited about it is that we've had prompting techniques to shape JSON responses and to to select from lists for a long time. And what probably has happened is OpenAI has built that in. They've maybe fine tuned a little bit towards choosing that well, but they still caution us that it might hallucinate things that don't exist. So they haven't solved the core problem, really. They've just taken an existing user pattern and baked it into the API. It's great, but haven't really solved the core problem that all of us want to use it for reliable code and it doesn't, it's not reliable yet. Yeah, for sure. And on the topic of, of formatting to JSON, Riley, welcome on stage. Riley works at scale and he's notorious for getting Bart to give him JSON back. While, <laughs> while telling oh. it, if it doesn't give Jason back, some, some people will die or something like that, right? What, what do you think about today's release? I, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's cool. I think, like, that, you know, that it's good that they're, like, responding to developers. And, like, I think that they, they're really, like, thinking, like, what I like about, like, OpenAI's products is that like, they have, like, a good, like, hacker ethos. And, like, they just sort of, like, think about, like, how would you like this to be solved at, like, an API layer? And I think that's sort of, like, where it comes from is that it's just sort of, like, if you had full control over it, like, what would you do? You'd tune one that, like, does the right thing. But, but I think what's interesting, though, to me, honestly, is that it's not like, it's not like, like what, what like, I think Grant Sladen was doing with, like, you know, like, forcing the, the like, grammar of Llama to be, like, the, you know, the given, like, context-free grammar, right? Like, like the, there are ways you would make this thing, like, bulletproof in terms of, like, syntactical completeness. And this isn't that, right? They just, tune, they just did this entirely through fine-tuning. So they just have like a note in the API saying that like, yeah, sometimes it won't, you know, give you the exact syntax or it might hallucinate something like no guarantees there. 
like which is you know like fair because like that's what happens if you do it through fine tuning but i think it's like interesting that's like uh it, it's i i, I re- i'm looking forward to trying it though like you know i have like i'm really confident that it's going to be like it, it's, it just makes it easier right like that's just just what people want this is like how people want to use those kind of apis i think it's, i think it's a cool development for sure and and one thing that's worth noting here maybe and um, i think we've talked about this in dm is that how different this is now from just prompting just on the level of API and implementation around this will differ from like, let's say, Cloud or Entropic. And actually, yeah, Simon, I saw you raise your hand. Folks, welcome Simon to the stage. Uh, Simon Wilson has an insane blog about AI stuff and is deeply lately into prompt injection. And this is potentially very scary as well, right? Because like they are oh, suggesting yeah. running outputs and then continuous running them. So I would love to hear your thoughts about this, Simon. So, I mean, the first thing, I think this is one of those examples where people asked for something and OpenAI said, actually, you want this other thing. Like, we've all been bugging them about reliable JSON output. Most of the people who want reliable JSON output are trying to implement this pattern. The, it tells you, I need you to run this function, then you go and run this function. So OpenAI appear to have said, no, no, you don't really want reliable JSON output. What you want is to be able to build this functions pattern well. And so we've done that for you. And I'm really excited about that. I feel like... Like, I've mucked around with implementing that tools pattern myself. And it's quite di- difficult in terms of prompt engineering to convince it to ask you to run a function the right way at the right time and so on. And if they've fine-tuned a model to solve that problem, that saves me a lot of work. And that gives me a much more sort of reliable basis to build on. So I'm really excited about that. I'm not, I, I feel like the, the think, thinking about it is in terms of more reliable JSON isn't really what's so exciting about this. It's that higher level pattern of being able to add tools into the LLM. And yeah, in terms of prompt injection, I'm excited that this is the first time OpenAI have actually acknowledged its existence. Like the documentation for these features, do they don't use the term prompt injection, which is fine. It's a slightly shaky term anyway, but they do talk about the security implications of this. And right now their suggestion is anything that might want to modify the world state in some way, you should have the user approve. Eh, I mean, it's better than not saying that, but I always worry that people are just going to learn to click OK to everything, just like cookie banners and so forth. But yeah, it's it's it, people build, as, as always with prompt injection, if you're building with these things, you have to understand that problem because if you don't understand the problem, you're, you're doomed to create software that is vulnerable to it. Thanks, Simon. And I want to get to Eric and then uh, talk to Sean about agents. So, uh, folks, welcome Eric Elliott on stage. He's the creator of Sudolang, which is partly getting LMs to kind of do what you want. And Eric, what do you think about today's release? I think it's exciting. I haven't had a chance to play with it much yet, but I'm excited to dive into it after my work day and play with it today and tomorrow and figure out what it's capable of. But uh, just some general tips. If you guys use, you can just define a little interface inside of your prompts and you can have it follow that interface and you could create an interface that's specifically for the, the function calls that you want to make and stuff like that. It, it, it might help it be a little bit more accurate. I've noticed that when you prompt it with pseudocode, it actually does a better job of obeying your constraints and, and following your instructions and creating the outputs that you want. So Give that a try, and if you have any trouble with it, I would be really interested if you guys post tweets just showing the difference in the accuracy of, or the reliability of the function calls in different ways of prompting. That would be a really cool experiment to play with. Yeah, most definitely. And and to just give folks in the audience some context around this, you can actually run different models by specifying the, the exact model that you want, mm-hmm. either the the three fourteen or the 
what, 613 that we got? Yeah, there's two new models. The Just using GPT-4 and the model call will tell it, use the latest one. So it'll use the new one if you just do that. I want to move to Sean. Sean, as a developer for a small dev, they got like a bunch of excitement <laughs> in terms of like running agents oh and writing code, etc. The whole point about them fine-tuning a model that actually understands several of the functions that you send and you can provide types and kind of the, the, the call structure, the arguments with types. How does that affect, you know, you and your friends in the agent making space that basically you write tools and then you also use some prompting to, to, to kind of ask the LM to run those tools. Now that we've kind of moved this thought process into the LM, you had a great post recently about different types of approaches. How does that play into there? And if you want to introduce your, your thinking around this. Would First of all, Alex, you're getting really freaking good at this. These are amazing questions. You're juggling all of us like really well. This round of applause, even though we can't applaud. Okay. <laughs> so the functions API eliminates some work that I needed to do for small developer anyway. I have some literally some open issues that I can just close now. Because I just say, like, just use this and stop bothering me with your prompts. It still doesn't solve what I was talking about today, which is literally, I think three hours ago I posted this, so it's kind of fresh. Which is this distinction between LLM core and code shell versus LLM shell and code core. And I think everyone in the agent's world is moving on to that world, the LLM shell code core. I'll, I'll explain this a bit later. But this functions API and OpenAI in general is very much in an LLM-centric view of the world, that the LLM calls out two functions, executes stuff, and then it goes back into the function, into the LLM again to do everything. So, you know, I'll characterize, I don't know if OpenAI would agree with this. I'll characterize OpenAI as always wanting to build the AGI, always wanting to build the God model, always wanting to, to go back to the God model to decide all the things. And I think the engineers who want more control, want more security, want more privacy, all that, all that stuff, um, want to, unbundle the LLMs, put, put, make it make individual components smart, but, but not to have it in central control. And you, when you see things like Voyager, it, it's basically using LLMs as a drafting tool to write code. And once you have code that you know works, just use code. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's more secure. And I, I think that's the fundamental tension because that's, an, that's a future that doesn't have OpenAI at the center of it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely a shift towards how OpenAI wants it versus potentially being able to switch out OpenAI at some point, right? So so I guess, and maybe Riley, you can touch upon this a little bit, how much kind of functionality like this, which is not only prompt and, you know, better logic and, and better understanding and inference, but significant kind of changes to the API, which other folks and players in the space don't necessarily have. I think Google released something where like you could you could provide an example of a JSON output. I haven't seen anything from Claude, but Riley, I would love your, your thoughts here. How does this kind of differentiate OpenAI just from a developer perspective of like, <laughs> this is our ecosystem. This is how we do things in our ecosystem. And if you, you know, if you want it easier for the model to select whatever, whatever you want, you should use OpenAI. And it's going to be harder for you to switch. How do you think about that? I mean, I, I think like... You know, I haven't like had a chance to play with it much, but I believe like Vertex has something very similar to this that you can like specify a JSON schema for it. And, and, it, and, and like, Vertex, just just for the audience, Vertex is the the Google kind of API ecosystem, correct? That, that's the one you talk about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Google Vertex, which is like so they're a more like developer focused offering, whereas like Bard is sort of like a consumer product. They're, they're doing like a more like differentiated rollout of it, but 
but it's like but yeah it's it, it's it, it, i haven't played with it much but i mean it's like it's an idea that was floating out there and i think like i've, I've heard on twitter at least that they like you know they, it was like a week ago or something like that so you know it, it's it's but i think it's great that everyone's you know responding to like just you know this this feels like a convention right like this is like something that that i've often explained to people many times like how to get your code your prompt to, to output regular json right and i think like and i often like sort sort of like like I, you know, I think like it's just a good way to think about like prompts is like structured, right? Like like code is very, you know, I, I forget who said this. So I saw somebody on Twitter that said that like, you know, it's a mistake to think of these models as being models of natural language. They're models of code, which happens to encompass natural language, like comments and, and names of things and so on. Right. So it's like the, the code part of it is like is so fundamental to how they think that like you should just like speak their language in some sense. And like, I, I think that's like, that's one thing I miss about like Code Da Vinci O2 actually is, is that like, you know, it was like more of that raw experience of just like speaking to the thing that thinks in code. But I mean, you know, GPT-4 is great, but, but like I, I'm looking forward to like playing with this like JSON thing because like it, it's just a common frustration. It's one of the things that makes like a chat thing, a, a chat application different than an API, right? Like that you want like certain regularity of behavior. And I think that's really good that like that lots of players are responding to that. I mean, something that, that we think a lot about, you know, uh, at scale for like Spellbook, right? We, we, we're really interested in like these sort of structured JSON objects. And it's like, yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's just a good move for everyone. Yeah. And Sean, you pulled Stephanie up if you would like to introduce or Stephanie, feel free to chime in. Here. Yeah, I'll just let Stephanie introduce herself. So I'm Steph. I'm currently doing a research internship with Microsoft Research and I work with Fixie.ai, which is also in this space of agents similar to Langchain. I, I had a question. I was curious, you know, I ran a hackathon for Fixie where people were building these agents for the first time. And I could see like people coming to these new applications from two ends of the spectrum. Like on one side, you have folks who are like no code, really learning how to prompt. They like to use like natural language. And at the same time, there's like all of these problems of hallucination, not being able to restrict the outputs or verify them. On the other side, you have developers that are used to like writing code in Python or and like using APIs and mixing that with natural language and knowing when to do one and or the other is like not necessarily a given where power users here. So I'm curious, like with these new pushes where, you know, you write more functions, you have to like in your API calls, like have many more levels of prompting. How do you see this affecting like onboarding people? Are we going more towards like developers having to put English here and there in their code, but spending much more time write, writing code or the other way around, right? Like, and what does this mean for these APIs and models and who are not power users? That's a great question, I think. <laughs> Anybody on stage who wants to take this, Riley, go ahead, and maybe Simon as well. Yeah, I, I think I think it just strips away one layer of like thing that people have to learn, right? Like this is just like a common like exercise of like how to get it to do JSON, and it's just like one less thing you have to know. Like it's it makes it just you can throw it in if you want it. If you don't want to like bother with this thing, you don't worry about it. You know, if it's a a chat thing, but I think it mostly just makes you know like life simpler to be honest. I mean, that's being, you know, I'm saying that without having to it. I haven't actually used the product, but it, it's a, but it sounds cool from the docs. 
I kind of find it kind of interesting how it turns like with prompting we're having to program in English, and it turns out that programming in English is kind of terrible because you know with, when you when you want a computer to do something, you want to be able to specify exactly what it should do, and having any ambiguity in it whatsoever, especially ambiguity where fifty percent of the time it does one thing and fifty percent of the time it does another, which these models do all of the time because they're not you know you can't guarantee they'll have the same result, the same input is actually really frustrating. So I'm kind of fascinated to see. If we swing back from English language prompting to more structured prompting as a way of addressing some of these challenges, but really, I feel like on the one hand, the thing that most excites me about language models is every human being should be able to automate computers and get them to do tedious things for them. And right now, it's a tiny fraction of the population that learn enough programming to be able to do that, which I think is is deeply frustrating. But yeah, on the other hand. As a programmer, I want to be able to sell a computer and have it do it. I don't want a program which which occasionally just refuses to do something because it decides it was it's unethical for this particular case or whatever. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated balance, definitely. You know, it's going to be really funny. One common joke about Python is that it is pseudo code that compiles. And it's going to be really funny if we go from code and then we go to English and then we're like, no, 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 we need to be able to specify you know something in in a concise manner and we end up reinventing Python. The the thing that I got very excited about is having recently and fairly recently, please don't judge, a move from JavaScript to TypeScript, and fairly recently understanding kind of the, the benefit of types, especially for larger systems. Getting this option inside kind of the prompt in a specific area and having potentially the model be fine tuned on understanding what exactly is the, the you know the type of argument to, to I want as a response. I think that's incredible. For some reason, I, I went into the playground and I saw that they're not using the open API spec, they're using kind of their own schema style. However, still, you can still specify, hey, for this function, you know, hey, LLM, hey, GPT, you would need to return here a number, here a text, and here like an object and maybe even specify the type of this object. And uh, Steph, kind of circling back to what you said, this for engineers like Simon, who've been engineering for all, all their life, and suddenly there's like an amorphous talk machine that sometimes refuses to do things. Suddenly this is now, okay, now I can reason about this. Now I can write out my API spec like I would do anyway. And now I can provide this to this model that potentially would adhere to this better because it's more fine-tuned. I think I think that's definitely exciting on the, on the engineering part. Mm, yeah, it looks like we have a few more folks. I actually wanted to hear from Roy. Yes, folks, Roy is here on stage. And listen, I'll get to you after this uh, just uh, real quick. Roy is the DevRel for Pinecone. And the example that we saw, I don't know if, uh, how many of you folks had the chance to dive into the, to the cookbook the OpenAI released. One of their examples is actually a step-by-step two functions that the AI calls itself, right? So the user asks about something, and then in their example, they're doing some embedding for the archive link, and then do something else. Uh, Roy, as somebody who works in like in a vector database space, and, <laughs> and we know that most of the agent tools use Pinecone or some example of that. What do you think about today's changes? How do they affect kind of vector databases and tooling around them? Yeah, so I mean, I think that like having a reliable way of going back and forth between the model and our code is going to be especially beneficial. What caught my eye, and I know that we've talked about this in the beginning, more than the function stuff is like the lowering of the embedding cost, which caught me oh, by that's surprise. that's a free gift for you. <laughs> and I'm actually wondering. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I was actually kind of kind of confused by that because like what I'm trying to understand is like how how is this possible? Like do they suddenly get cheaper GPUs to like get embeddings from? 
it's it's kind of it's kind of both a great news for us but also you know it's kind of a mystery as to like why was it so expensive to begin with and what caused the the drop um all of a sudden yeah and, and for for those who recently joined we've talked about this where the recent drop was around november december and they back then dropped the ada 002 embedding to like by like 90% and now it's another 75% drop. So we're seeing these unprecedented price reductions from an API. I don't remember like another example of this. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, and and I honestly, like I, I would love to hear from anyone here who has like better understanding of like the, the internal workings of OpenAI potentially as to like how they made this possible and should we expect even further reduction in the future? And, 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 and also I wanted to ask Nova, and I know he's still maybe like, only in listening mode, but how he thinks that impacts, you know, embedding in the client and, you know, like how, how he thinks about these changes as well. Zeno, feel free to raise your hand and come up if you want. Sean, you, you unmuted before if you want to touch uh, I think obviously none of us here work at OpenAI. Logan usually joins in some of these spaces, but obviously he might have, he might have a meeting right now. So we don't know. Right, what 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 happens internally in, in OpenAI? I do think that having had conversations with some OpenAI employees in the past, whatever they released in like November was the most unoptimized version of this. You have to believe that there was basically a few orders of magnitude improvements, maybe two or three, not not, not that many, but orders of magnitude improvements in infrastructure and cost as they understand your usage patterns and you know distribute load, like scale up machines, that's that that kind of stuff. And then the other thing to watch out for is and sometimes the models shift and then just call it the same name. So actually, they're deprecating the older models and moving to a newer one, right? So they may, they may have found an, a better trade-off between inference and training such that inference is much cheaper. And that's definitely been the trends that we've been observing on our podcast about Llama-style models, quote-unquote. So you, so you can see like a, a general trend towards optimization and, and inference. So I, I, think, I think that's one thing there. And then lastly, I'll just point out that... Embeddings are a form of lock-in. So it's actually very much in, this, in OpenAI's incentive to lower the cost of embeddings because then you embed the whole world in OpenAI's image and you have to speak OpenAI to, to queries, retrieve, and, and all that stuff. So, I, I mean, I, I, can, I can't explain the, the, the degree of, of price reduction, but I can explain the motivations of it. And I think oh, we'll get in just a second. Sean, as it relates to what you said, they're reiterating multiple times that they're not using any of the data that, that provided via API towards towards training. And I think it's worth highlighting that at least that that's what we're trying to do because we've heard, at least I heard from many people, like, hey, well, to use our data for training, etc. So I think yes for ChatGPT, especially for the free version, but via the API, it looks like the data that we're providing is not is not getting OpenAI is not using it to train. Uh, so I want to welcome to the stage Zenova. Zenova is the author of Transformers JS, recently a Hugging Face employee. And we just recently had Zenova. We talked about embeddings on client side, partly because of the same reasons, right? Because you don't want to provide maybe your production data or maybe you want to run cheaper and faster embeddings. So Zenova, definitely feel free to chime in here about the role of <laughs> cheaper and cheaper embeddings on, on OpenAI side as the, and also the lock-in into OpenAI's ecosystem versus running them on client side or, or you know, on models for, for free on localhost. Yeah, thank, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely, I think there's two different use cases for these types of things. Where the OpenAI, what OpenAI is really providing is like these very large scale 
I mean, any any business now that wants to embed all their data or, you know, any project that wants to, as, as you've mentioned, like embed a large amount of data, they're going to benefit so greatly from from these price reductions as, and I mean, as, as we have some people in, on the stage here as well with, with the vector databases, I mean, there's, it's, it's only going to accelerate that part of, of the space right now. And then the other option, which is sort of what I'm, it, it's funny, I, I'm not too sure if this is like a battle between these two sides or it's like just two different use cases is the, the client side running of these, you know, generating embeddings and at, well, with the project I'm working on now, Transformers JS is basically running these models client-side, running them in the, specifically, the way I started it was for running in the browser locally. And I think that as we, as I saw from well, a demo that was created like a week or two ago, there's, there's quite a bit of interest running these things locally. Obviously, you don't want to be sharing some sensitive data or latency perhaps is an issue that you don't want to make like a bunch of these requests and then Anyway, there's there's a few reasons for for client side embeddings, and obviously the the major drawback of this is that you do not have the same like power. I mean, some of the OpenAI embeddings are what like 1,536 dimensions, whereas limits I've seen in the browser or locally is around like 768. So depending on your use case, I think you can do very well with either case. For the very like industry level things, I, I mean, it's quite certain that you'll be looking for like, a, you know, using OpenAI's API as well as a, a vector database, perhaps for those use cases. But for, you know, lesser maybe hacker <laughs> type of things where you're messing thing, messing around with some things, a little project that you've got going on, I definitely think like, client side generation of embedding still has a place to a, a role to play but yeah it's, it's it's very very cool that this type of stuff is is happening where you know these price reductions and whatnot so sorry alex yeah i just wanted to say Zenova, that that i'm i've been actually using transformers js in node which works really well and I think that for those kind of use cases, it goes well beyond hackery. I think that there's a real case to be made for using local and you know, you know, open source models that don't kind of call out to a third party. And you know, as as once we can have like better open source models that are compatible with Transformers JS, you know, the better it will get. And in fact, all of Einkom's JavaScript's examples are going to be using Transformers JS for that matter. So. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. <laughs> that's great. I wanna I want the panel to talk about the selection of the functions, right? So one of the things we saw today was that OpenAI essentially lets us to provide several functions, including the function definitions. So description of what the function does, and then the parameters or I guess attributes, if we're talking about Python, and attributes types as well. And then Kind of similar to what happens with plugins. If you have used plugins in GPT before and you select several of them, the, the, the model kind of decides which plugin to use based on user input. And obviously, we've had some of these in agent land and Office GPT and, and probably small dev from, from Swix as well. Some decision of what tool to, what tool to use goes to the kind of the, the planning loop or planning agent. And honestly, anybody on stage, feel free to chime in here. How are we feeling about, I know like this is repeating a little bit, but like how are we feeling about giving VLM that type of decision power <laughs> based on the description, based on the parameters to answer users kind of request 
differently? Do we need to now provide all of our APIs to this? Sure. How do you think about this? I think that one piece of thing, in the, something in the documentation that I was looking for and didn't see was what's the limit of the amount of functions we can give it? Because ChatGPT plugins, if you, if you try it inside of the web UI, you're only allowed to specify three of them. There's 400 in the plugin store. Do I, do I just enable all 400? Like, is, is that, can I stress test that? Probably not, right? Like, so there's, there's just an undocumented limit somewhere. What if they conflict? What if there are two, two plugins that are very, very similar to each other? What happens there? So I feel like this is just like an uncharted territory. Like it's not really clear how to benchmark this stuff. Hopefully they're benchmarking it internally within OpenAI. But the rest of us, we, we're just supposed to like give it functions and hope that it works. It seems, it seems a little bit unscientific, but I don't know how to test it. I'm not so worried about this because in this case, we have complete control over which functions are available. So we get to pick the two or three That's functions true. we think are most useful. I feel with plugins, it's much worse because the user's picking there. And so you're potentially... Your whatever code you've written is potentially interacting in the same environment as code someone else has written you don't know anything about. And that's the point where I worry that weird decisions may be made that, that don't necessarily make sense. But I feel like if, you're, if you control the full library of functions that you're exposing, I think you'll probably be okay. The other thing to think about is I think it's probably going to be better to have a small number of functions where each one can do a lot more stuff. Like I've built a ChatGPT plugin where my function takes a SQL query and returns a response. And actually there's an example in the OpenAI documentation of, of doing exactly that as well. That works amazingly well. Because your documentation for the function can literally be, send me a SQL query in SQLite syntax. And that's it. The model already knows SQL and knows SQLite syntax. So just like five or six tokens of instructions is, is, is enough for it to be able to do incredibly sophisticated things. So yeah, my, my hunch is that we'll find that we actually want to only give it two or three functions, but have each of them have quite sophisticated abilities, maybe based on domain-specific languages like SQL or even JavaScript and Python. You know, give it an eval function and let it go wild, see what happens. Uh, yeah. Well, two, two things in, ter in terms of the, uh, the number of functions you can add. I think it's unlimited. It's just uh, based on the context length of your, uh, of your query and they're counted as input tokens. And second thing, another idea would be that you could add a, like you can chain this within, like you have a call before to determine from a list of functions, which function is most appropriate for this use case. And then you just pass those limited set of functions. Oh, yes. No, that's a fantastic function. idea. Because, yeah, you're in full control of each time you loop through it. So you can change the recipe of functions dynamically as your application progresses. Yeah, yeah. So, so it looks like uh, a few for uh, a few notes here for, for the folks in the audience. The cookbook, Simon, I think that's what you were referring to. The, the cookbook. Uh, yes, yeah, that's a really great notebook. example. It's a great example. The OpenAI released for us to kind of to dig through and then see some examples. And so, two two thoughts, <clears throat> two two things I noticed there. I think Sean, you talked about this as well. One of them is, is this new role for a function output. So when you provide messages back to ChatGPT kind of chat interface, there's the system role, there's the user role, and now we're getting a function role. And back there, you can provide what function actually generated kind of this output. So you can, and the format that the cookbook shows us is your user does something, you provide the, the GPT kind of the user query and your functions. GPT potentially chooses one, or you can force a specific function output. You can say, hey, for this thing, I want this function to run and generate a result for this function. So we don't necessarily have to give it the choice. We can just say, hey, run this function for this user input. 
And then once the once we get back a JSON output formatted per our spec, we then need to provide it back to GPT, potentially to summarize or do something with that data, which kind of plugs in also to the vector DB retrieval systems, right? So we can retrieve something and then ask for, for an additional thing. And I think the, the the decision of whether or not to run a function directly or to give it a choice is going to be an interesting one. Also now, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about this, and Sean, please chime in here as well. You can technically provide it a function output of a function that the previous prompt didn't run, like right, like like with the user input and the system input. You could just invent the function output exactly and provide it in that uh, exactly. function role. So I'm really interested to see. So how you one thing that I've had an issue with this small developer is like it basically does single shot generation, and sometimes you just need it to give it more inference time, right? You need to do the tree of thought thing. You need to ask it, like, you know, rerun the code and fix it, whatever. I don't care. Just do it five times, and then and then I'll, I'll take a look after you're done messing around with the errors. And so, actually, like, the functions can call themselves. You, the functions, you can synthesize code to fulfill functions. And so I, I'm, I'm actually very intrigued by what Simon has raised, which is, you know, let's just say for, for the very specific purposes of code generation, I have maybe three paths, right? One is generate code, two is test code, and three is like call existing code. And if sometimes I call existing code and sometimes I can call myself and, and have a little bit of recursion in there, I essentially have the basis of a code agent just with this, those three functions. And so you can like, basically, those are all the things that you're running for a very small subset of, of, of use cases. And you can potentially now provide them. Again, we haven't played with all this yet, right? It's yeah. brand new. <laughs> We're doing an emergency re recap. But potentially what you're saying is you can just, in every prompt now, provide all those three capabilities and either have the model chosen for you or force a yeah. specific one to, to give you yeah. the output that you need with potentially high re reliability, right? So that's the part that w w I would love to discuss. Exactly. Uh, uh, well. I, I'm going to hand it to Steph in a bit. But yes, so I'm extremely, extremely inspired by Voyager from NVIDIA. Dr. Jim Fan, I think, is somewhere on, on Twitter. The core insight of Voyager is that you should use LLMs as a drafting tool to write code. And then to and once you validate it that the code works, you never have to write it again. You can just kind of invoke it. And so you ratchet up in capabilities. And, you, and that's why Voyager was able to achieve the diamond Next in Minecraft so much faster than all the other methods. Um, and I think that's exactly the way that we should probably code as well. And, and so, yeah, you just kind of do a bit of recursion, build up a skills library. And I'm probably thinking that that is going to be the, the V2 of small developer. I was just thinking that there's like at some point like a blurry line between these functions and the way we conceptualize agents because some of these functions can be seen as agents. And I'm very curious, like to your question earlier, like when the model chooses which function to use, how does it do that? And how could we constrain like that mapping, right? Like, do we have some sort of schemas based on like the types that functions take and the outputs they have? Or can we actually build the retrieval into the training, right? So th there's this paper from Google called Reveal that shows like how they could encode and convert diverse knowledge sources, like it was images and text and all sorts of other like multimodal embeddings into a memory structure consisting of key value pairs. And they did this at training time. So they have like much more robust and fast responses at retrieval. So I'm, I'm curious, like I, I think the implications of having functions and having the model 
do the routing for these functions will also pose questions in terms of schemas and retrieval. I think the, the interesting outcome of this potentially is now the description of functions suddenly potentially are as important as the prompting before, right? So now we have to write descriptions that potentially will help the LM to choose the functions. But there's definitely stuff, there's a way to force, like to, to ask for a specific function output, which is, I think, what most developers do by default while expecting JSON is for this one use case, give me an output that's like JSON formatted for this one use case. And that's still possible. But I agree that it's very exciting, like how it chooses and we're, we're going to have to build up and actually Riley, maybe, maybe Jimena as well. <laughs> we're going to have to build up kind of uh, like an understanding of how it would choose, right? Like we're going to have to start playing again, <laughs> like Riley did for a year, just like playing with this, trying to see like which one of those people will choose and build like an intuition of how to write proper descriptions and potentially when the, when the model chooses a different, different function. Especially if we want to share our functions and not rewrite functions that other people have written and imagine you have like a much larger search space at that point. Yeah, it's, it's really nebulous because like you're sort of like, it gives you the ability to like run software that only exists in your imagination, right? Like if you can just have like some vague description of how something works, like you can be like, oh, it's like Twitter, but it has this, you know, or something like that. And like, it'll work, right? So it, 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 it or at least, you know, at least it, w it has in the past, like way ways that I've done it of like doing this through font engineering. Like I haven't used like the, the current thing, but I mean, like that's generally how these go. Is that like you? you it's like it, it's it, it's made to work off documentation, right? Like that's you know I think that that's the key thing is that it's seen a lot of documentation. It has a lot of experience in the training data of like how documentation relates to code because like it's trained on like code bases, and I think that's like you know it's a good kind of expertise to leverage. I would definitely add a function summary of what's there at the end of every prompt, just to shim it. I, I found it a little bit frustrating, even just with normal plugins as to know which plugin it's, it's going to pick, right? So there's, there's some prompt engineering to do there. Okay, so some people are suspecting that, it, it, again, it's not a real 16K. It's more like a variable 16K, kind of like GPT-432K. Like I noticed this with 32K as well the max responses i was getting back was like up to like 7000 ish tokens and, uh, and and that that was about it i mean you can you could input 30k of of stuff you can input a code base and then maybe get something back get a summary back so i think this might be the case here as, as well you can't really get back a very long response but at least now it, it is responding up to 7,000 tokens. Whereas before it was pretty hard to make it write even like responses longer than 2,000 tokens out of one single prompt. So yeah, any, anyway, it doesn't look like an, an 8K in responses. You, you can dump in up to it. So Nistan, I, we're, we're gonna wait for you to, to test the limits of this and see if you can get 16K tokens of JSON back. And meanwhile, I wanna welcome Mayo on stage. Mayo is the... the May, you want to introduce yourself if you're still affiliated and let's talk about LangChain and how it already supports this insanity that we've released. Yeah, no, I was just gonna, I, I just tweeted probably just an hour ago. I just, I, I just couldn't get the hype behind this because for me personally, I'm, I'm looking at this as they're not saying anything new, right? First of all, in terms of the context window, 
you know, when we kind of look at that, and I saw Far Farel, you also you you made a tweet as well, just saying, hey, <laughs> like guys, what 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 are they saying this new here? So okay, the, the context window has gone up, but the embeddings are cheaper, so retrieval is still going to be a go-to, right? So what's the benefit exactly for this extra context window if we're if we're still going to perform retrieval? anyway and now retrieval is cheaper then i don't really see the uh, too much of the benefit unless you want to do named entity recognition but from a qa perspective again i i i don't i don't really get the the big deal there the second thing was the in terms of the function calling which langchain had abstractions for that even the you know there's there's been a lot of research papers and, and like llms and using tools as well so we've been aware of that. You know, it's been a case of prompt engineering. The only thing I can see here that seems to be the trend is is some sort of like maybe a replacement of prompt engineering with fine tuning, where you have this kind of fine tuning of the model to be able to basically output tools and, and for agency. So yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here, but I just I just the the, the updates just. I can I can I can address at least the first part of this, and then folks on stage feel free to to address the the, the first or second part. Thanks, Mayo. So, in as as regards to like larger context window, the thing that excites me the most is that when you have variable input from your users, when like users can do something that you you don't necessarily need know the size of, uh, larger context window just makes it easier for you to just provide all of that context into into an API without thinking about in the head, okay, I need to count tokens, etc. Now, obviously, pricing aside, you have to like obviously consider that you know each token has a price, and then users can can go and rack up your bills. But for for my examples, and by users, I mean the stuff that users provide, right? So I run Turgoom, Turgoom uses Whisper to translate, and then I use GPT three point five and four to actually kind of fine tune the translation. I just shove the whole translation transcript into the, the the prompt right and so what happens often is for longer videos for example i have to then stay there and say hey for this you know for this transcription i need to count it with TikTok, and i need to do some maybe splitting and splitting doesn't really work and so it larger context window definitely unlock those type of possibilities with the kind of you know the restriction that the sean talks about whether or not the attention is the same and it's split the same across this whole context window but just being able to not think about this with 4x the size of token now available on gpt 3.5 i think that's, that's definitely a huge plus for for folks who are not you know necessarily token price conscious at this point this also works well with kind of how open the eyes documentation about plugins and building plugins for the ecosystem for chat gpt works right they're saying hey don't shove all of your API in there. Select the, the two or three use cases is going to be easier for the model to, to use. And Simon speaks to a previous kind of uh, talk about choosing the right functions at every time you run the, run the prompt. If you wanna, if you wanna add some thoughts here or not. And if not, we're gonna go to move to far L and you have your hands raised. So go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to add that if you like, you don't want to outsource or abstract away the thought process for your agent or chain or whatever call to achieve, to, to be able to, to know which action is being called, right? And, and it goes towards the idea of interpretability, you know, like understanding how you're getting to the actions that you're getting. And it's basically like, like you've got your prompt magic 
or engineering at play to get to a specific action or a specific output that is visible, right? Like we, we don't know what's going on under the hood with with their API call. And I, I don't know if I would trust it in all circumstances or applications. So just to recap, you're saying in terms of observability and, and repeatability of how it chooses, maybe folks don't want to give out. Give yeah, out 100%. The, the decision which, which functions to use. Yeah, that's interesting. But but I, I can see it from both sides. Like I definitely see where if you want to build and I think you're talking exactly what, about the kind of the decision that Sean is, it's in one of the pin tweets on the Jumbotron that Sean is talking about, where there's there's increasingly a split between whether you're using a large language model as also kind of the, the arbiter of, of the stuff, and then some pieces of your code is getting called by it, or vice versa, when you're using this for like planning and and some of the decision making. Yeah, well, no, Sean, could you could, like? Uh, I'd love to hear from Sean on his yeah, on his tweet on on the the breakdown between the two paradigms because it, it does resonate with me as well. It's it's a good way of breaking it down. So, would love to hear more about it. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I was actually tweeting it without knowledge that they were going to drop this thing today. So it's not actually related, but it's it's in an overall trend, right? Which is what I've been calling "code is all you need." That you can't really use language models effectively unless you have code, that language models are enormously enhanced by training with code and language models are good at writing code and using code. And so we just basically just need to, to utilize code really effectively. But I think the, the main tension that I feel, you know, I'm sort of halfway between the retrieval augmented generation worlds, which is kind of like V1 of whatever people have been building with LLMs. And then V2 of it has been the agent world. I feel this fundamental tension in terms of whether you put the model at the, at the center of everything and you write code around it. So this is called you know, LLM core and a code shell. And, but ultimately, still the model driving things, the model hallucinating things, the model planning things. Or do you constrain the model so much that it only does a, a small job, which is something that I originally got from the core design of Baby AGI, which is you have individual components of a software program uh, that are that are intelligent but they they are only constrained to do small things and so i think that that is that is the alternative which is llm shell as an outer layer to interpret things for a code core and with this update and i I recognize mayo by the way that yes these techniques have have existed in langchain and and prompt engineering has has existed as, as a thing but just opening eyes just made it official, right? Like we have a fourth role in the ChatGPT roles that is for functions. And now we have enabled language models to call functions pretty easily. It is not perfect yet. It still hallucinates. It still generates invalid JSON. So we still, you know, there's still a role for, for, for engineers to play here. But we might be moving from a code, you know, LLM core code shell world into a LLM shell code core world. And I feel like that is a very big shift. I agree with what you're saying. I guess the, uh, what what it seems to me is that there's a shift here from kind of prompt engineering heavy approaches to fine tuning, right? I mean, that's that was my key takeaway from looking at the paper. Yeah, they uh, did they once. did fine tune on yeah this specific use case. Yeah, that's something that you can't achieve through prompt engineering. Yeah, yeah. So previously, we 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 would achieve the same thing through prompt engineering, right? And and I guess it remains to be seen the quality of how much of the stuff that we previously done with prompt engineering. Because Riley, I want to get to you in, in a second specifically around this, right? Around prompt engineering, even when you ask Jason, even if you <laughs> threaten, sometimes 
above the JSON, you would get here's some JSON for you, and then you have to like deal with the the, the unnecessary kind of descriptions. And now we're getting more of like direct tooling, I guess. Yeah, I think it like it, it's there. You know, the when we went to this like message-based API, we made conversation and like chat a lot simpler to implement. But like, not everything is conversation. Like the the sense of that that like that you're doing completion, like document completion, is is gone. Like there used to be this like at this like this drama that you sort of had to put on for the model of like pretending that you are in this kind of document and like using the right kind of language that's appropriate for that document and so on to like make it believe it, and then like then it would you know reliably do the thing. And like now it's it's like it's all conversation. Like it, it might just like decide like oh that's rude I, and like say I'm sorry I can't do that and break character in some sense, right? Like it's it's very like heavy on the refusals now, and I think that like there there's blowback from that in small ways, and I think they're patching that. Like it, like it sort of like makes it like more like it makes the the things that you would otherwise be tedious to do like like less tedious, right? Like you can you can have something that like is like the proper way to do it. And so I think that's, I think it's a good move overall, but yeah, sorry. I think Stephanie, I hear your hand up. Oh, I just quickly want to say that if I was to put my money on, on it, like I would say the small models long-term is the way to go for various reasons. I, first of all, like I, I'm imagining a future where these models can run on device and, and they're more secure and more affordable and the information is more private and uh, the data and the training is not concentrated in the hands of a handful of organization. But then from a practical and pragmatic point of view, you know, there's like right now lots of limitations in terms of compute, even in these large organizations like Microsoft and Google, like everyone is like strapped for compute right now. So I, I do think we need to push for smaller models and more efficient models and for interactive applications, like the latency really needs to be improved. Right now we're nowhere near where you could actually sustain interactive applications at scale. The last thing I was going to say is that I don't want to chat with everything. I'm imagining like this dystopian future where I need to chat with my calendar and I need to chat with my email and I need to chat with my sir. Like I, I, I think like there's also the aspect of UI and UX that will need to evolve because having a chat interface for most of these applications is not going to scale in my opinion. Uh, 1,000. Well, there's so many claps in the 100s in everything that you said. But yeah, we've been trying to push forward this field of AI UX on our podcast for a while. We, we held a, a couple of meetups and yeah, I strongly encourage people to explore beyond the text box. I don't know if OpenAI is interested in that, right? Because they're self-deprecating the old completion API and now everything's chat. And I think Riley feels this pain because now you can't play those, those old tricks anymore. Just because they're doing that doesn't mean, I don't think they have like one opinion or another. I think that like, you know, we, we could just like think of these models as reasoning eight like engines that we can leverage and then do whatever we want with the output and especially now with like you know the added ability to to use you know some some form of structured output and and i, I do agree with mayo i mean it just it does seem like they've basically been listening to the community and kind of adding a feature that may have already existed but they're doing it their way which is also okay but like that to me kind of signals that you know if anything they're trying to give us more paths to you know create interactions that go outside of just chat back and forth that's actually a good a good segue into how do you guys think these changes affect kind of what Steph just said that people don't necessarily want to chat with everything so even though 
it's still in this chat format via the API, right? So Riley was talking about the completion endpoint. Previously, you, you would send some text and then the expectation from the model, I think it was DaVinci, right? They would just auto-complete kind of the rest of it like uh, by, by a few segments. Since then, we moved to this chat thing. And then we saw some differences between like even 3.5 and, and 4, where the system message kind of applies differently. So we, go ahead, right? Yeah, I, like I, I sort of like... I mean, just to give like, like sort of like a you know, slight historical tangent, like like when GPT-3 was first published and like the paper came out describing it, all they described that it was capable of doing was in-context learning. This idea that like if you gave it like a bunch of examples of a task, like translation or just like some like, you know, these like classic machine learning problems that you would use neural networks for, it could do them. Like which is from like, you know, following a bunch of examples. And they called this in-context learning. And like they didn't really advertise that it was doing much more than that. They kind of like had another section of like, oh, look, if you give it a half of like half of an article, it'll finish the rest of the article. And, and like it's funny and cool. And like, you know, but like if it's good at like mimicking style, like it's sort of like the substantial thing. And those like those were like the, the applications of it. And like it wasn't warranted as something that you can talk to. Right. Like that had to be like slowly and like, you know, with, with like a lot of innovations like engineered into it. And, you know, like RLHF is, you know, a big part of that. And like part of like RLHF is like choosing what you want it to be. And like they chose the, something that is like an assistant that they, that there's like a general like purpose, like something like a person that you can talk to that like will follow commands. And like, if you ask it a question, it'll answer it. It won't be sarcastic. It won't be rude. You know, like it should have like certain personality traits that make it usable. And like, it, it's, it, it's a cool idea, but like there's, there's, you know, there's other ways of, of like, doing it too like like you know like like reynolds and mcdonald like had like a paper that showed that you could beat one of gpt3's 10 shot prompts with a zero shot prompt by like like conjuring up a little fiction for a translation that so like just saying like french colon you know french sentence and then english colon like only works so well but then they found that it worked better if you say the, the an english sentence is given colon give the english sentence the masterful French translator, or the yeah, the masterful French translator flawlessly translated translates it into English as colon, and then they you know like hit the completion button, and that gives you better performance than giving it ten examples of how to do translation, and like that like that's sort of the start of like this idea that you have to just like you know flatter the model sometimes, like tell it it's really good, and like you know like do these like silly tricks to like you know constrain it to the right kind of document to make like your thing work, and it's like that is going away right like every version that they've like released has made it less about that like that there's like the the, the i, I mean I, th I had like a tweet about this once i said that the, the that cheerfully declaring that you're smart before working has been deprecated right like it's every version of the model that they release makes that like less effective of a trick and there's like a plot somewhere that shows this but like you know it's that that like art of it is like going away and now it's like talking to this particular assistant but they have control over what they want that assistant to be like they're sort of the storytellers and we're like talking to one particular character in, in their fiction which is the assistant sorry that's my it, like, wrong rant there <laughs> no, no it's great it takes us forward and please write stay on this and now it feels like we're getting a semi-third option right so still in this ui of like messages or chat essentially we're now getting like a new type of ability which is function which is like you, you pass a function and we still haven't played with this a lot like we're still here talking about this instead of running a thing but now we're kind of getting a more of a more fine-tuned controlled do the thing that, that you know you need to do in those functions versus hey talk to me about the thing that i need right does it feel like that shift to you as well or it's still too early to tell i think it's it's fixing one of the like problems that resulted from it and it was a big one right that it, it used to be that, that's like 
that there were ways of like getting it to be regular and good with code and like the things structured the right way. And like they didn't quite fit into this, like you are an assistant who answers questions kind of like role play. And uh, like, so it's good that, that they're addressing that need, I think. But yeah, I, I think like it, it, it makes it easier to like, you know, do more work in this conversation UI that, that like, so it makes you miss like, you know, completions a little bit less, I'd say. Yep. And, and so we'll see. Uh, Simon, I want to ask you if you're still with us about, you know, you're a lot about, you know, the security of these things and whether you think that the tools that we've just gotten, besides being very developer friendly, engineering friendly, and, you know, type friendly, so we'll be able to actually expect a, a specific response. Do you think that there's promise here to solve some of the prompt injection things that we've, we've seen and you, that you've talked about? I mean, honestly, I think this is going to make things worse in that prompt injection is kind of doesn't matter if you're just playing with a chatbot that can't actually do anything. It only becomes dangerous when you hook them up to functions that let them do things in the world. And this new thing makes it much reduces the barrier to hooking it up to functions by an enormous amount. So my intuition is that people are going to charge straight ahead, hook it up to all sorts of things they shouldn't have and, and have all sorts of nasty things happen as a result. Um, there are some improvements. So the one of the big features that OpenAI announced is that the system prompt is now respected more, which do, does tie into prompt injection to a certain extent. But, you know, GPT-4 is better at system prompts than 3.5. It just means that prompt injection hacks are a little bit harder to, to pull off. You have to be a little bit more devious with them. So I don't think sort of incremental improvements to the system prompt are necessarily going to have a huge impact on the problem. I mean, it's really it's really frustrating, right? The all of the things that I want to build with this stuff, kind of a lot of them don't make sense if we can't make sure that you know I don't ask it to summarize an email and that email says delete all of my e other emails and the model goes ahead and just does it. I feel like the thing where you can control which functions are included in each round does help to a certain extent. But I don't know. It's still it's still really difficult, right? I think I think the thing I've decided I've come down on is. Whoever provides the most input as part of your prompt, they have full control over what comes out of the prompt at the other end. That's the way you have to think about it. So if you're summarizing a web page, whoever wrote that web page essentially gets to take full control over the output of your language model, whether you, like, whether you want them to or not. And that's really frustrating. It means that there's a lot of things that are very unsafe to build. One cool thing, Simon, that I noticed recently, just recently, is that Bing chat that does have a page access, right? So if you use Edge on dev version and there's like you have the sidebar for, <laughs> yep. for Bing, it has full page access. And they started saying that sometimes it doesn't work. And they actually have like a classifier that tries to understand if the page has prompt injection. I don't know if you have seen that. And if you yeah, yeah I, I don't believe in those. The idea that you can detect prompt, inje prompt injection attacks, sure, you'll detect some of them. But the problem I have with that is that the whole point of security engineering is that you are up against like adversarial attackers who will try everything under the sun until they find a security hole. So if you've got a prompt injection filter that catches 99% of all prompt injection attacks, that's worth nothing because the attackers will find the 1% that gets through and they will, they will, they will take over your system that way. So yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm just not a fan of solutions that, that get most of the problem solved, because in security, I don't think that, that counts for anything at all. 
for sure. And so with these capabilities that we can technically constrain the response into one function and that function has to have the same kind of schema, etc. Do, do you think but, it's going to be a little easier to protect your the stuff? Or no, I don't think so. I feel like that's kind of irrelevant. Like, because the, the problem, if, if the function is delete my email, it doesn't matter if you get the schema right or not. It's still, it can cause a harmful action. What you have to do instead is when you're designing the system, you have to say things like, okay, make every action reversible. So at least if the LLM goes rogue and deletes all of my emails, I can undelete my emails again, that kind of thing. Um, if it's an action that cannot be reverted, like sending an email to your boss, that's the point where you have to have human approval designed in. So when you're designing these, you have to assume that a prompt injection attack could succeed and make sure that the damage caused by that is either reversible damage or at least has some way of the human of, of, of a human catching what's going on and stopping it. I really love this. I'm going to try to use that as a template for a small developer. This, yeah, this, there's different modes. You, you market your market function as reversible or requires human input, and you build up a library of them. I think functions are just the complete utter game changer to everything. And if you're going to run any kind of sensitive data through this, I don't think any large company or medical field should let you run it without a function to clean up what you're sending through. So this goes both ways. Yes, it opens up major security holes, but at the same time, it completely changes everything. And I mean it because up until now, yeah, you could do a, a lot of things, but operations were really hard. Scaling was really hard. The thing has a mind of its own. Sometimes it, it, it returns stuff in the right structure. Sometimes it don't. And like, how do you build products around those? Because in computer science and DevOps and, and stuff, like you expect a response, either an error or in a certain format. And you didn't have that. Well, now you do. So now you have an interface to the whole world. Now you can do stuff with it. Like this completely changes everything because so you I can agree. fire it off, you can clean up your data, you're finally free. I agree with everything you've just said. Um, I completely agree. And yet the security implications are still terrifying to me. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm going to, I have things I'm going to build on top of this, but I'm going to be very careful about them. And I think the reversibility especially like I want to build things that let people clean up data, like have a conversation with your data to clean it because everyone who works with data says they spend 90% of the time on cleaning and they hate it. So great, I want to solve that problem, but I want there to be an undo function precisely to, to protect against some of the things that could go wrong. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to say. Like one is while I shared like the excitement, I think that we still have to be careful because you know, these things are still going to hallucinate and there's not going to, there's, there's still not a uh, clear way to overcome that, even using functions. <clears throat> That's number one. And number two is that I kind of want to echo what Mayo said before. And while I, I do appreciate that, again, this is like a great advancement. It's super cool. I don't know if I would call it a game changer because this has existed, right? Like this, this has happened in various, various frameworks you know, blank chain guidance, you know, other other frameworks have guardrails in place. Yes, this, is, this looks like a very good implementation of this concept of having guardrails and being able to basically force the LLM to do what you want. And yes, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's beneficial to all of us that OpenAI that owns these models actually put 
put like some effort into fine tuning their own model so that this works really well. But I, I just I just want to curb the enthusiasm a little bit, right? To just say like this isn't like you know earth shattering and like hasn't we haven't seen anything like this before. The same could be said about ChatGPT though, right? When ChatGPT released, folks are like, well, this is just prompting and this is just sending the same like back and forth, you know, text. And then yet ChatGPT was the first product that, that got to like 100 million, whatever. Sure, um, sure. Let's so, see how, so, how the adoption goes, right? I mean, the it, second it, all of us drop from this space and then start actually coding with <laughs> this and then we'll come back here and then we'll see. Go ahead, Simon. And then I want to hear from Sean and, and Steph. I just want to say for me, until today, the functions thing was always a hack, right? You could get it working on top of language model, but you had to do some pretty weird prompt engineering and mucking around to, to get that to happen. And now that it's part of the core platform, it feels so much, the, the friction involved in getting that working feels so much lower. I'm no longer afraid of it. You know, I was kind of cautious of doing this trick in the past because I knew there were so many ways that it might break. Now that I know that OpenAI have fine-tuned a model for it, I feel a lot more confident in using it. So I think that makes a big difference. I want to say thanks for everybody here on stage sharing with us, like exploring with us, Simon and Sean and Riley and Niston and Zanova and Pharrell and Mayo and Steph and Roy and so many great folks here discussing kind of these latest changes that are definitely exciting. Potentially, if if you're siding with Niston, groundbreaking and earth-shattering, which I tend to agree. And this is, this is, was the reason for the space uh, with, with Sean. We, we discussed this in DM, and we brought a, a great panel of friends to kind of discuss how, how big this is. And I think now that we're hitting like an hour and a half, I think we're here, let's do a fairly quick kind of discussion about what are we building with this new tool that we have? So yeah. I'll let Steph go, and then let's let's maybe everybody feel free to, to unmute and kind of have an instruction debate, and then we're going to close this out because I'm losing my voice. And although the, this has been fun, it prevents all of us from going and actually playing with these, <laughs> with these new tools. <laughs> so Steph, go ahead, and then feel free, folks, to chime in and say, what are we building with this? I just wanted to give a shout out to Leon and his team. They just launched Garak, which is this tool for a security probing for LLMs. And it has a an auto red teaming function. So that might be interesting to check out. But one, one thing that I was thinking about while Simon was talking, and I read your blog post on prompt injection. And, you know, on one hand, we want to have more people exposing these vulnerabilities and maybe sharing their code for red teaming and their examples at the same time that is helping people who want to abuse like these models and functions. So it's 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 a tricky one. I'm curious how how you're thinking about it. And I had a parting question as well, which is what are we gonna ask next from OpenAI? What is missing and what would make our use of the technology of the API better? So this is a really interesting ethical question that it's, it's like all aspects of security research people talk about, responsible disclosure of security vulnerabilities. The frustrating thing with prompt injection is we don't have a fix yet. So, you know, normally if you find a SQL injection hole in someone's website, you quietly tell them about it and they patch it and then everything's fine. With prompt injection, seeing as there is no known way to fix these problems, I kind of feel like it's on us to make sure people understand before they build systems that are vulnerable to them. So that, that's the approach I've been taking is just, just really trying to shake people and say, no, you can't just say, oh, we'll filter it out. It'll be fine. That doesn't work yet. You need to sometimes you need to say, no, I cannot build the feature you're asking me to build because it can't be built securely. And that's really frustrating. I kind of hate that. Like, I, I don't want to be the person who says there's a security hole. 
you need to stop. I want to be the person who says, there's a security call, here's the fix for it, and now we can move on with our lives. But sadly, we're, we're, we're not at that, that point with it yet. I, I like I 100% agree like I like it's been frustrating it's been weird to me like it's gone from like suspe- suspicious to like frustrating to like just like curious like like th- this seems to be such a hard problem like it's a like they're, they're like it, it, like I, I, I think what's going on really is that like to solve this you kind of had to re-engineer it to this message based API because like they have now reserved tokens they have tokens that only they know exist that they can insert in as like quote marks and they can have things like a system message. They can tune it in a way that it actually, like, you know, like if you, you could peer into its brain and see like what circuit is it implementing, it's something that pays attention to the system message in the right way that it like understands the difference between what like the open AI customer told it our instructions and what the user told it. And like, I think that's progress in the right direction of like that it's like a sensible, like, argue, like it makes sense to me, like as an outsider of, of like, that's how you would like go about addressing this. It's just like, it's a big change. And so, like, I, I think they're moving towards it, but it, like, speaks to just, like, what a hard problem this is, you know, because, like, it, it is since May, I think, since, like, a preamble uh, where the original, like, discoverers of it, you know, in, in May. And so when they put it in, you know, responsible disclosure. And so it, it is just, it seems like it's just a deep, like, issue with how, like, you know, the in, instruction tuning or attention or something about this works that, that like, it's not trivially fixable. And, you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, they, they're, they're making peace, you know, like piece by piece progress towards it, I think. Very interesting to see because we did get an upgrade to 3.5 model, right? And Simon, you previously mentioned that there is a difference from a system message, how much the, you know, the, the model adheres to it. Well, four, it's like way better than 3.5. It's interesting to now test again this new model and see whether that listens to the system message better. Maybe they implemented some of that in this kind of new update to, to this model. Yeah, they call that steerability. They specifically say that the three new the, the models are now more steerable than they used to be, and they talk about steerability. That basically means how much how closely it obeys the system prompt. I w- I'd love to see some examples of that. You know, I've, I've not played around with it yet, but I'd love to see a few examples of prompts that were easily prompt injected with the previous three point five, which are now protected against. But I did note that they they have not flat out said. This is a solved problem, and until they do, I'm going to assume it's not a solved problem because you know it's in their interest to, to solve it and then tell people they've solved it. So I'm sure that you'll research this. And folks, Simon has a great blog, basically like a, a pensive from Harry Potter that Simon has since 2013. I, I looked at it, Simon. You're very prolific, so I recommend following Simon and and his blog and thoughts. Zenova, go ahead. And I think after that we'll do like a round of of last parting thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up this because I. I, I'm not 100% sure of how they've really implemented it behind the scenes, but has anyone here sort of heard of like JSON former, the like one of these projects that was sort of aimed at these, at generating structured data? I love that thing. That thing is so <laughs> clever. Yes, it's wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just wondering why. Or, so, I'm I'm speaking from because I, I I'm not really sure how they've implemented implemented it behind the scenes, but assuming they are not doing it this way, is there a reason why OpenAI has chosen not to? Because JSON form is like by definition you cannot. There's no such thing as prompt injection in this case because you only generate tokens that. So you. Oh, yeah, I you, I you disagree on that front. I think. JSON former solves the problem of you want it to output JSON and it outputs invalid JSON. It do, but prompt injection in this case is much more about 
when you summarize a web page, does the text from that trick it into then making a valid call to a function that does something you don't want to do? But yeah, oh, no, JSON right. for, okay. I, so, so, so the, my the, hunch the on JSON former, I wonder if they just haven't had time to implement it yet. It's quite a tricky thing for them to, because the way JSON form works, people who haven't seen it, is it basically injects extra logic at the next token prediction thing. So it knows that if you're doing JSON, you've just done a curly bracket. The only token that can come next is a single quote, is a double quote. And then the only things that come after that are not double quotes until you get to the end and so forth. So you can force your model to output structured text that matches JSON or YAML or whatever. Super right, clever. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 my guess is that OpenAI just haven't got around to fully implementing that yet and they'll, they'll get it working at some point. Right, yeah. So um, that's just sort of what I was what I was getting at with the sort of in the, the bullet I, I mean I'm reading their readme right right here. It's like <clears> the <throat> bulletproof way to generate a structured data. But so what I I mean this does not cover the case where you the 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 separation between the user's input and the calling of the function. That is always susceptible to prompt injection that, that that's where the security holes are. But assuming that you are forcing it to generate uh, structured data like JSON, there are these current approaches where, I mean, it's modifying the logits. I mean, I'm, I, that's how I assume it's currently working where it modifies how the next token is predicted. But so that that that's sort of what I'm getting at is like, so why hasn't OpenAI done that approach or have they or, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing about these spaces is we, we don't have Logan here or anybody from OpenAI. And when we do, they don't necessarily able to tell us what they're using. Go ahead, Riley. Oh, I was just curious, I mean, if you'd played with, I think, Grant Sladen working on like context-free grammar stuff that like I linked a while back, I didn't know how that compared to JSON former. I think it's the same exact trick, just even more, even cooler because his thing, you can give it any grammar you like, forget about JSON, it's anything that can be specified as a grammar. He, I think he posted the idea that he'd like to be able to upload a WebAssembly program to OpenAI, to, to the OpenAI API and say, run this to pick the next token, which I think would be freaking incredible. That's an huh. absolutely brilliant idea. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Well, maybe just go around and say like what we think should be built or yeah. take a page from Steph, what do we want OpenAI to ship next. Yeah, this is, you know, some, some people from OpenAI will definitely be listening to, me, to this. So here's your chance to do your, uh, your pitch for why, what they should build next. <laughs> Go ahead, Steph. I was going to say, I, I would like, love to have knowledge graphs and be able to have better retrieval. So, you know, this idea of like training with retrieval in mind and yeah, like not necessarily relying on vector databases like that's that's something that i would love to see in the future simon i want widgets in chat gpt i think chat is a terrible interface i would like to be able to build it like a chat gpt plugin that would say now show them a map now ask them to pick something from this list of options things like that just let us go beyond just having people type text to us <laughs> indeed indeed it's an over i i want like a 30b model that's open source from them. I don't mind if it's like a uh, Lama license. Open source. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just some some model you can mess around with. That, oh that'd be God. nice. All the class. Please, guys, the class. ADB, if you can do that. So like, what you know, maybe we should train like GPT 2.5. Like just, just dial yeah, it back a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> Zenova or Far L? 
I mean, I'm sort of on the open source uh, coming from hugging face, so, you know, so, but, but I, uh, you know, yeah, uh, GPT 2.5, let, let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, honestly, I'll just, uh, I, I just want 32K GPT-4 with 75% or 80% cost reduction. <laughs> Come on, you get that next month. Dream bigger, dream bigger. I, I really hope so. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm I'm very curious to see what we'd be able to build with these new functions, and specifically combining them with agents. I think the opportunities there are pretty amazing. It's definitely going to make life a lot easier. And yeah, of course, if we could have like some more open source models, that would be awesome. And Python is going to have a chance for us to, or at least for folks to to test this out, right, Roy? You want to tell us about the hackathon? Oh, sure. We're holding a our first virtual hackathon on June 19th to the 26th. 100K in prizes. It's going to be super fun. It's going to be held in Kumo space. And we invite you all to attend and show us what you got. 100K in prizes. That's, that might be the highest I've, I've yet heard for one of these virtual hackathons. That's pretty cool. Mayo, and then Alex and I'll go, and then I'll have Riley give the last word. So Mayo, go ahead. Yeah, open source, hundred percent. I mean, we we it it's good what they've done, but then you know my mind just goes to you know how can this be applied to open source, right? You know what they've just pulled off with the fine tuning. You know how can we apply to open source? So yeah, I'd love for them to you know start to to be open as it says in their name, right? Yeah, they should just rename at this point. How about you, Sean? Well, okay. So, yeah, obviously, you know, you want things for free. They're not going to give it to you. End of story. I, I, I'm just very interested in Franken models. I'm very interested in what Simon has been sketching out this in this space, which is essentially using them to call still smaller models, but that, that do sp- very specific things, but can do a lot of things. And so I'm interested in essentially just kind of rewriting my developer agent to do that kind of routing and, and explore the possibility of recursion. And when I, when I have more information about that, I'll, I'll report back. That's great. I want to just, before I, before we go, I want to call out, Tom has a podcast called Layton Space. So definitely check it out. Oh, I'll be posting and... the recording of this. Yeah. I mean, this is, oh, awesome. this this is great. This Everybody podcast. chipped cool, cool. in. Yeah. You have the developer perspective. This is what we want. Yeah. That's oh, so and awesome. we, we also are going to drop our first, the, I think the first ever interview with George Hotz on Tiny Corp, and I'm very excited about that one. He so revealed... make sure, yeah, make sure you don't miss that because uh, AMD <laughs> is lagging behind Nvidia, and George is working in that space, and yeah, uh, potentially he, like, some exciting things to come. He had this email with Lisa Sue and went back and forth. It was very dramatic, and no, nothing with George is boring. Yeah. So Riley, go ahead. What, what, what would you want from OpenAI? I think like the thing that, that you know about this this whole relation is that like it, it's it, as cool as functions are like they're they're I think the real thing that might be more important in the end is is just this march towards lower prices and bigger context windows. I think there's a lot of unexplored stuff to do with big context, and there's a lot of a lot of possibilities that are opened up when things are just cheaper. And you can like put in redundancy checks. You can have like secondary prompts that like check the work of the first prompt. You can like you know engineer reliability around the parts that you need. So, I mean, it's hard to overstate just like how good it is that just the stuff is becoming cheaper. And Riley, I, I saw that there's a webinar coming up and then you're going to teach advanced prompt engineering. You want to talk about this for a sec? 
Oh, yeah, sure. So scale is on July 15th. And I think we've already closed applications, unfortunately, but um, uh, womp, womp. On, <laughs> yeah, on July 15th, uh, we're having a, a hackathon and I'll be giving a talk on prompt engineering there. And I, last time we did this, I, we did like a replay, like, a, like I did the talk again for a webinar. So we'll, I expect we'll probably be doing that again. So I want to thank everyone here coming up to the stage. Here's my request to open the eye. I want the vision API as fast as possible. Oh, I've yes. Been, I've been mouth-watering on the Vision API. Today, Mikhail Perakin from Bing confirmed that already like 10% of Bing users get access to the GPT-4 Vision API. And I participated in an interview with the founder of Be My Eyes, who are currently the only people in the world who has access to Vision API. And that was a great conversation. And I expect amazing things once that drops for the ability of, you know, a GPT-4 to understand the real world, not to mention how many prompt injections we can do via text. And But that's a conversation for another, for another time with Simon and Riley. But I definitely want to thank everyone for coming here. This has probably been the biggest space that I've ran. So thank you, Sean, for, for prompting this and everybody who joined. Hey, yeah. And and now we're going to have some time to go and, and play with these models and new techniques. And hopefully we'll see you guys again. The, the last plug I'll say is that I'll do... I'm doing spaces every Thursday. Many of the folks on stage here join. We talk about latest updates. This was an emergency one. And glad to hear that Sean is going to compile this into a podcast. So definitely subscribe to Latent Spaces. But everybody, thank you for joining. And go go play with the new cool tools we got. Let's go build.